Lectionary Lab Live is recorded live in Gainesville, Florida and Brasstown, North Carolina. Welcome, everybody, to the Lectionary Lab Live. I'm John Fairless. I'm here with my bubba, Delmer Chilton. Say hey, bubba. Hey, bubba. Hey, man. Good to hear you today. We're going to talk about a few tech. Not not a few. We've got quite a few. And uh, think about preaching today. These are the texts for the fourth Sunday after Pentecost, June the 25th, twenty. 23. Don't know how many folks y'all got in the summertime. I do realize my attendance goes down a little. I'm heavy in the snowbird country down here in Florida. And so well over half my congregation is back up north uh, while the rest of us are down here sweating. But you know, a, I find- lot, a lot of yarn came up came- to the mountains in North Carolina. We the places where I'm you. This is the time when the the snowbirds come and yep. it's too hot in Florida. This that's time it. Of year. I, so they that's come to it. Mountains, in North Carolina. So I've, it all evens out. They're floating around somewhere. They're, they're, somebody's preaching to them this week. So, yeah, yeah uh, I feel like Richard Simmons sweating with the oldies down here uh, <laughs> this summer. But uh, all of that to say, we got some text to work with, whether you're right. following sort of the semi-continuous track along, working your way through Genesis, whether you're following the gospel-oriented track, or as we've already seen, some really interesting stuff for those of you who may be working with Romans. I am confident, Bubba, that you've got something to say about all of those. So uh, rare back and have at it. Well, frequently we try to do three, you know, a theme that runs through everything. And I'm not mm-hmm. going to pretend to do that. You made a joke last week about shoehorn sermon, shoehorn sermon. Delmer's shoehorn specials. Yeah, yeah. And uh, somebody, you know, was uh, thought maybe we did have such a book, but uh, <laughs> we don't. Y'all but have to be. It's too bad y'all can't see us. And, and there's a reason for that. But. There are those times when I have my tongue firmly planted in my cheek, and I know some of you may not be able to tell that. But Yeah. So anyway, but the, I'm not going to shoehorn any themes today to make them all fit together. Mm-hmm. There are three basic themes uh, that, to pick from, and you've got these texts. Now, if you are going with the semi-continuous uh, lessons from Genesis and Exodus and a little smattering in the rest of the Pentateuch this summer— kind of hitting that basics of the Hebrew foundational stories, there's one theme going on with mm-hmm. it and the song. Uh, secondly, we're doing some semi-continuous reading through Romans right. this, this summer. And there's a different theme going on, or a wonderful theme I want to explore a little bit. And then you've got the complementary text, which are Matthew and Jeremiah with their attendant song. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk with about Genesis and what's going on there with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and its attendant psalm. Then we'll talk a little bit about the Romans text and death and baptism, etc. Then we'll end with talking about um, Jeremiah and Matthew and how much the truth hurts not only the one told truth to, but sometimes the truth teller hmm. has to suffer a little bit for the sake of the gospel truth. So. Yeah. 
that's where we're going today. Y'all stick around. We'll get to whatever it is you're looking for or whatever you, you might want to there's, hear today. As there's, our, today. there's our uh, lectionary itinerary. As this is the time of summer, it's time of trips. So this is where we're going in the next Let's hours. do it. So Genesis 21, 8 through 21. And, um, you know, the first lesson, as I said, throughout most of ordinary time this summer is from Genesis, Exodus, and a few other things, the foundational stories of the Hebrew people. And it is very important for us as Christians to understand as the people about whom we talk in the Christian scriptures, when they say scripture, this is what they mean. Right. And these were their stories. And there's a reference to these kind of stories that we saw a couple of weeks ago when talking about Abraham and Abraham believing God and it was reckoned as righteousness. So these are very important stories to know in order to understand the rest of the story. Uh, I label the story today uh, sometimes Real Housewives of the Desert. Oh. <laughs> we have sex, jealousy, pettiness, distress, rescue. We got all the makings of a soap opera. If you go back a few chapters and forward, which is the wonderful thing about mm -hmm. doing the semi-continuous is you don't have to just stay with the particular snippet of the story, but you remind people kind of like when you're watching uh, uh, a show and it's continued next week. And right. so it starts now, I'll remember last week. Last and, week on. And mm -hmm. we anticipate in the future. So uh, looking back a little bit, you've got this story where Abraham and Sarah were promised uh, a child and a land when they were old. Uh, that's re repeated. You know, they were 75 when this promise. Paul says they were as good as dead when he talks about it in Romans. And they were barren and all this, but yet they trusted God. But the problem is not quite. Um, there were various times when their trust wore a little thin. Mm -hmm. uh, there were times when Abraham didn't trust God to protect him. And when a kid, his wife was supposedly, though past the age of uh, childbearing, she was also apparently quite beautiful and he was afraid. So he passed her off as his sister instead of his wife and let her go live in a harem. That's a kind of cowardly thing to do. Well, tacky for the great man of faith, wasn't it? Yeah, very tacky. And then Sarah, on the other hand, kind of lost uh, uh, faith that this was going to happen. It's very important in this culture in that time. She needed a male to protect her and look after her. And if Abraham died and there was no male heir, she was stuck. And the way the rules worked, and we're not really totally clear, if her handmaid had this child then that child would be responsible for taking care of her, for her having yeah. inherited the stuff. So that was a self-providing thing. But the, no, no matter how you look at it, Abraham and Sarah performed an act of sexual violence against Hagar. Take her, he took her. And, you know, you can clean it up in a lot of ways, but that's what happened. They lost faith and they sinned. Yeah. Sin not only in loss of faith, but in actions against someone else. Hmm. So things go along and 
we come today to the point where, you know, Isaac was born and this is great. And now he's weaned, which is a big moment. And they have this big celebration and it's big party time. And this is where the housewives of the desert comes up. You got this great party. Everything's good. And then Sarah looks around and she sees the unnamed Ishmael playing with her two or three year old mm. child. He's probably five or four, five, maybe six. And she says, hmm. This she suddenly realizes the problem. <laughs> maybe, maybe that wasn't such a good idea, you know, That's twelve years ago. Idea. Yeah. And she says, hmm, if Ishmael inherits, it's at least split. And I'm gonna have to be I'll be less than Ishmael's mother in the hierarchy here, et cetera, et cetera. So she goes and says to Abraham, you get these people out of here. So this is her second time Mm -hmm. of doing violence against Hagar and Ishmael. At least Abraham Abraham has a conscience about it. (laughs) He was distressed. Distressed, and he goes and talks to God. This is an interesting thing to, to work on here is how God says, it's okay. I think, you know, you can have to read a lot into the text to decide the mind of God here. But at least we can say that he said, basically, you're going to have to do what you're going to have to do, and I'll take care of Ishmael and Hagar. Don't worry about it. So the next day, he sends them off into the desert with bread and water with predictable results. And uh, Hagar is so distressed about the child is dying that she has no food, no water left. She puts him under a tree and goes somewhere where she doesn't have to watch him die. I, I am um, unbelievable, but I've been reading some, uh, some records of people, you know, lots of refugees in Africa right now and people mm-hmm. writing about what's happened. And these are stories that are common. Yes. Nothing but what you can carry, walk, running from Sudan to here and, and back and forth. Rwanda, all these people, you know, you can read these things and they have, they've had to watch their children die. Yeah. They've had to make choices. Uh, which child do I feed? Which one do I let live? And which one do I let die? And people waking up in the morning and the father has walked off into the desert, leaving his food supply behind, sacrificing himself. Mm-hmm. For his children, etc. So this is a very real situation. It is, and you don't have to go all the way to Africa. You go to the southern border of the United southern States, border, and parents pleading, pleading. You don't have to let me into the U.S., but please take my child because right. there's nothing, nothing for them. So you've got that going on, and we can identify with that. And she's crying, and it's interesting. It says it heard the baby crying, not Hagar's plea. Is interesting. <laughs> but what's very important is the God of Israel, what we call the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, hears the cry of the outcast and makes of and fulfills a different promise, one that he made to Abraham that Ishmael will also be a great nation. Yeah. God yeah, and we've mentioned this, and I think most of you know this, but Genesis is just filled with the continuation of the covenant and the story, yep. uh, the actions of the humans on the on their side, Abram and his folks, are always threatening the covenant with their actions. Right. And you've already laid out right. some here today. Yeah. The thing that comes through is 
God is still keeping God's promise. And it says to Abram, I will bless the boy because he's your son. I promised your offspring. Nothing Ishmael has done, nothing Hagar's done, not really anything Abraham has done, but it's the covenant faithfulness of God all through the story. Yeah. And so one of the things, you know, and then then it it tells that, you know, kind of summary thing. He grew up, she got him a wife from Egypt and he became a great hunter, you know, that kind of summary kind of once upon a time stuff. But what's interesting for me is it raises the question, and I, I wrote a sermon on this for this week, is why does God bless bad people? We're always asking the question, why does God let bad things happen to good people? Mm-hmm. It makes an assumption there are good people, for one thing. I, one of my facetious answers to why does God bless bad people, well, if he didn't, he wouldn't bless anybody. Yeah, I was going to say, if God wants to do any blessing, uh, look around. I mean, what are God's deeper, choices? The deeper question becomes our mm-hmm. fantasy that the world works on a kind of... Um, God looks down upon us and blesses the people who are good and and gives trouble to those who are bad. And at the end of it, you know, we hope our good outweighs our bad and we get to go to heaven and the bad, you know, all of this thing we've constructed, which has nothing to do with how God is operating and why God blesses. Because all the way back at the beginning, before Abraham had done anything, this is very important because this is Paul's point, before Abraham had done anything, I will make of you a great nation and through you will bless the families of the earth. God's intentionality is a universal blessing of the world. Correct. And none of Abraham and Sarah's actions are going to keep that from happening. And so God continually reacts to our failure to live up the covenant by renewing the covenant and going past it. So when we sit around trying to figure out in our individualistic way, am I say who's saved and who's not? And am I, am I'm saved and that one's not. And uh, God bless me and God blesses us people like me. We forget that us includes everybody, mm-hmm. the world. And this story, if you reflect on it and play with it, and begin to reflect on how God's purposes are greater than any of our little individual blessing or damnation issues. God's purposes are for the benefit of the world. And we receive what God gives. And out of gratitude, we become participants in God's blessing of the world. Yeah. That's the key. We yeah. become participants in that. Not as any sense of earning a reward, but out of gratitude that we are included in what God is doing. And yeah. we become part of the blessing of That's the it. world. Uh, two, so, com- two, two quick comments. Yeah. Uh, just stuff that's on my mind. And we say from time to time, it's our show. We can talk about what we want. <laughs> but seriously, there there is a connection here. I want to do the probably more pleasant one first and that's in verse 18 this image of hagar imaging or showing forth the the work of god as a uh, almost a stand-in for god the word of god comes to her in verse 18 come lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand 
And we're going to get language like that throughout Genesis. It goes throughout the Hebrew scripture. It goes uh, certainly throughout the Psalms. God lifted me up out of the miry clay. God holds me by God's strong right hand. And here you have God instructing this woman, this slave woman, this outsider to act like God. Lift the boy up. Hold him fast with the hand. I'm going to take care of him. The other thing I want to say is picking up off of your little semi rant there for a minute, and I'm going to do a real rant. And that is how we get all concerned with, well, we got to be sure we're doing good so God will bless us. And those people over there, they're doing the wrong thing. So we know God's going to get them. Um, I Every time I think I'm done with my former uh, tradition, the Southern Baptists, they find a way to tick my ire. And yet again, this past week, and boy, did it hit the national news, New York Times, MSNBC, and uh, CNN, and so on and so forth. Uh, yet again, they have felt the need to express their righteousness. We must be faithful to the Bible, and we're going to go against 175 years of Southern Baptist tradition. We better kick those churches out that dare have women preachers. When I saw little Al Moeller, and little Al, if you're listening, if you happen to get this or somebody sends it to you, I'll talk straight to you, brother, because I was in school the same time you were. I knew you before you became the all-powerful spokesman for the executive committee and the president of Southern Baptist Seminary, my school that you and your compatriots have ruined, in my opinion. And it was just an exercise in supreme self-righteousness and arrogance, in my opinion. And it's exactly what you're talking about when we get all wound up in trying to speak for God, how God can do this and how God can't or won't do that. Be careful, my friends. You're treading on some dangerous ground. Here ends the rant, and I'm sorry if I exposed y'all to that. Right. Uh, I, I will say, I will say, Bubba, I saw a couple of Lutheran pastors on this week on YouTube coming to the defense of the uh, Southern Baptist Convention and trying to explain True. to all of us how important it was to stand up for that quote biblical inerrancy. So I kind of. Them was them, them was them Missouri senators. I don't know. I don't know. I, I kind of groaned for you. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. I don't even think about Missouri Senate fellers no yeah. more when it comes. Anyhow, to Genesis and the Hagar's part of this saga, I think, pretty clearly says none of us better tell God how God can work in the life of right. the outsider, the outcast, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, well, I, and I, you go, I, Linda Barnes. You preach. There you go. Well, the um, the one thing I want to mention about Psalm eighty six. Um, you know, it's, um, is it's tied in here because of verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me, give me your strength to your servant, save the child of your serving girl. So that's an obvious connection, but it is a, a, um, a prayer of saying, hear my prayer. And that's what happens with Hagar and Ishmael. Their prayer is heard and God comes to the rescue. Well, we're going to shift a little bit to, to Romans 
and talk about that a minute before we come to the two complementary texts. Mm -hmm. Romans, I just absolutely love this, and this is what I call my Baptist day, my Mm -hmm. immersion day when I get on this text. Uh, John and I, uh, back in the day when John was still loosely affiliated with the Baptist church, (laughs) we shared a building, and it was a Baptist church there in Nashville, and the Lutheran churches, uh, we had an office and worshiped in the fellowship hall, and Every once in a while, uh, you know, babe, infant baptism and this kind of thing, we had some conversation about it. We Stop me if I'm wrong. We, we came to the understanding that each way of baptism has a powerful thing to tell us about being Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, infant baptism has a lot to do with, uh, I think from the Reformed point of view, they talk a great deal about as a covenant thing. In sometimes circumcision of kind of being raised up in the community mm-hmm. and coming to a point where you confirm your baptism, you're raised up as a Christian child. And uh, baptism in, is a, for the faith sake of the family, uh, the, the community, and the child mm-hmm. to know they have been baptized. They have been claimed by God yep. and they are called to respond to that. On the other hand, adult (laughs) baptism, particularly by immersion, has such a powerful image, which is included in the Lutheran um, baptismal liturgy in Mm -hmm. which we talk about the very beginning. If we have been buried with him in a baptism, in a death like his, surely we will be raised with him in a resurrection like his. This is the image that Paul is working with Mm -hmm. here. And we did reach a real fine accommodation there. And uh, these days I just, I just roll with the Ethiopian eunuch there with (laughs) Philip. Here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? We don't know how much water there was. And you know, what, what does it matter? uh, God's uh, work and the water's here. Let's get going. I sprinkle them. I duck, dunk them. I'll do anything, any way they want to get, get done. Mm -hmm. So, Paul explores an extended metaphor, really, in this text. This is what he's playing with. Mm -hmm. And what he's connecting is Christ's death and resurrection, you know, death into the grave and coming back out. He's connecting that with the act of adult baptism in which you go under the water and you come back out of the water. Or in the Orthodox tradition, they they combine it and they immerse the babies, which... Go on YouTube. It's kind of fun to watch. Some of them love to twirl those babies around, and I'm sure, sure the mamas are holding their head when this goes on. But, and the, so the Christ's death and resurrection, the baptism, and our Christian life of what needs to die and what so to make room for our new life in Christ. And one of the powerful images in here is all the things he talks about dying and all the things he talks about living. Look at all the language about death and sin dying and dying and buried and old self and dead to sin, paired off against life, grace, uh, renewal, resurrection, alive to God in Christ Jesus. So he's playing with what happens in that imagery and The real important point, I think, for me here is that even in the language he's using, he's not, he's saying it's not a sudden change. It's not like, boom, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, you suddenly go under the water and you come out all different. (laughs) You're healed. Uh, Have we been born again? And Luther's answer always was every morning. Yeah. 
And I, I've often thought, and I've looked back at my life, I'm 69 years old, and I was baptized as an adult by sprinkling when I was 21, and mm-hmm. I'd made some life commitments before that, just hadn't got around to getting baptized, mm-hmm. as they say. And who I am now is not just a product of getting older. It is a product of exploring the Gospels and understanding the various parts of me that had to die in order for other parts to be born. And I've had, I've had death and resurrections on issues of race, gender, sexuality, orientations. I can get, the list goes on and on, some small, some large, and none of them sudden. I look back and see how things gradually died and other things got born. It's more like, what is it? Your, your skin goes, you reproduce your skin every seven Mm -hmm. years or something. Yeah. There's a certain way in which growth as a Christian is a constant process Mm -hmm. of death and resurrection and no one. And this is, why I don't think anyone needs to stand on with great certainty as to where they are at this point. Yeah. Because things can change. Absolutely. And um, so I love that text. And I think any, it'd be a wonderful text to explore the issue if whether you got a baptism or not, but kind of what does it mean to live a Christian life? And, and what does baptism for in our lives mean? Uh, for for Lutherans, both the confession is a reminder, a confession which begins each service is a reminder of our baptism, or the thanksgiving for baptism is a service you can do there, and also the creed, which is the ba- the creed is a baptismal creed. It was asked those questions, and so mm-hmm. as we, you know, you can lead into the creed as we say the creed today. What are we really saying? And as we say this with the early church. What are we? What are we saying? And what does this mean? And what if you don't believe all of it right now? Well, maybe <laughs> some things die and other things get born. It's a gradual and ongoing process. Yep, we are indeed being saved. We are being yeah. saved. We're being renewed. Um, and yep, you're right. Right down the middle with it, Bob. I like it. All right. So this other set of text, the complementary text. Uh, you got Matthew and Jeremiah and, and the complimentary psalm there, and both of it circles around uh, an important issue. And uh, I joked about it earlier. The truth hurts, and it doesn't necessarily just hurt the person you tell truth about. Usually when we say the truth hurts, it's somebody very smugly having been nasty to somebody, mm. and they said, well, I'm sorry, but the truth hurts. <laughs> uh, kind of defending yourself. Yeah, if only you were telling I mean. the truth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, assuming, you know, sometimes just being mean and calling it telling the truth is, is not the same thing. But in this case, uh, in two different sides, we're talking from two different sides. In, in Matthew, you've got, Matthew and the voice of Jesus telling people what's going to happen as you go out and witness on my behalf. Jeremiah, after the fact, is complaining to God, shoot, this didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to. This was not (laughs) not the way I thought it was going to be. 
Jeremiah 27 through 13. I, I, I don't want to go. There's no need really to jump into the details. It's of the particular occasion. You can do that with the commentaries. He is speaking against the grain of what everybody else thinks. Of right. They don't want to hear what he has to say because it's totally against the political and cultural things that they're doing. And he feels called and compelled by God to say these things. But one of my, one of my Old Testament professor, uh, Max Rogers at uh, Southeastern Baptist, I got my Baptist year in too as I made my transition. Mm-hmm. And uh, Max Rogers called Jeremiah the whining prophet. You know, he, he yep. didn't mind complaining. Uh, he complained to God that this prophet business uh, was hard <laughs> and emotionally unrewarding. Yeah. Uh, and he had a lot to complain about. I mean, he got uh, called into court for blasphemy. He got beaten and put in the stocks. Another time he got beaten and put in prison. It wasn't like he was making it up. Yeah. Somebody had threw looked him, at him bad. Or threw him down in a dry cistern? Yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't like it was just like they didn't say nice things about his sermon after church. Mm-hmm. They got after him, and he said, you know, I was doing fine. His basic beef is my trouble started when I opened my mouth and said what you told me to say. Right. That's the core of all of it, he says. I was fine. But here's this other beef. I tried not to do it. And you 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 enticed me. I love that line. Mm. You baited me. You forced me. You 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 I can't not say it. It's, I remember, you remember, uh, remember the liar, liar, I think the Jim Carrey thing yeah, where yeah. he couldn't do, he had to tell the truth. He couldn't, no he matter couldn't what. lie for 24 hours or whatever. Yeah. 24 hours. Well, this is Jeremiah. He can't not mm-hmm. say it. And um, I tried not to say it, but it came out anyway. This is the, the person who is called and all, I, I hope most of us, on this uh, podcast, have a certain sense of that. Why am I doing what I'm mm-hmm. doing? I can't do other. Yeah, I can't. God do has called, showed me something. I have to show the world. Yeah. Uh, and and that broken. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say that language in verse nine uh, for me says it the most. There is within me something like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary withholding it in, and I cannot. I took about six months of semi-retirement or a break after stepping down uh, after 15 years as the senior pastor at my at uh, First Baptist Church in Gainesville and thought I was just, you know, yeah, I'm going to be fine taking a little time off. And it took me about six weeks sitting in church, uh, you know, listening to other preachers, other pastors. And boy, I mean, all of a sudden, I just got restless in that seat. <laughs> and I'm going, you know, I could have said, and it wasn't about critiquing others. They were doing a fine job. I just rediscovered. I had a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I could not hold it in. And there was a, there was a cartoon in leadership magazine that I've kept around for a long time. It's really, you know, old, 
but it has a guy sitting talking to the pastor and said, I can't stand to hear anybody else preach. Does that mean I'm called to the ministry? <laughs> so one of, the, yeah. one of the things to examine here is that Jeremiah, in Jeremiah, some people are distressed by the absence of God. Jeremiah is distressed by God's overwhelming presence. Yeah, yeah. And and I think preaching-wise, one could ponder the comfort zone of, all right, I went to church today. I sang the hymns. I sang. I love a lot of those. I wish they'd sing more that I like. And <laughs> and uh, I saw at coffee time some of my friends and. And the preacher, well, he got a little on my toes, but that's okay. And uh, I don't. But then you get leave the parking lot, and it doesn't really have much to do for for the next week. That's kind of the. I made a deal with God; He doesn't bother me much. I don't bother Him much. I'll show up on Sunday, and mm-hmm. that's one level of it. And then there are some people that just when they're reaching out, they can't find God, and that's distressing. What I think is more distressing is when God finds you and won't let you go. Uh, what is it? I can't remember his name. Francis something, the hound of heaven, the poem and pursuit and can't be let go. That's where, where Jeremiah is. And he's the, I wonder how Jeremiah would have felt about this. that's inside him and burning. If he had done it and everybody said, Oh, that's great. I love that sermon. That was hmm. one how he would feel. So his, his feeling is, I thought I was going to go out and witness and everybody would be excited about it. And there's this thing going on. And this is where it ties in with the gospel. I'm come to it. The mm-hmm. Psalm is a personal re- lament and verses um, eight through 12 reflects a little bit of where Jeremiah feels of this alienation because of his relationship with God. Yep, very much. The- I become a stranger to my kindred, an alien to my mother's children, etc. Which ties to the end of the gospel lesson, this extended part there, where in a kind of summation of what he's been getting, Matt, Jesus has been getting at in Matthew. It talks about the destruction of domestic life because of the gospel, but it's been built up to. Um, you can look at this, and here's here's the thing with this text. It's hard to see it as consistent or having a theme. And I, many, much gratitude to Fred Craddock for helping me look see this. What's going on here is Matthew is not creating words of Jesus, but taking things Jesus said from a mul- probably in a multitude of settings mm-hmm. and putting him in this place in which he has Jesus saying these things to the apostles, which Jesus did. Right. But all at one time, probably. Yeah. But Matthew has in mind, you're going to think he's writing this to the early church. Matthew has in mind the persecution the early church is facing as they proclaim the gospel. And he's reaching back to words of Jesus to the apostles and saying, no, it's not going to be easy. Yeah. And we in the 21st century are hearing it and we need to hear it say the same thing. And he says, 
about six different things, one after the other, that circle around the same theme. It's like mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Berglund taught preaching at Duke, and he used to talk about what he called a circle the wagon sermon. <laughs> you have a point in the middle that's the circled wagon, and then you ride around and shoot and arrows shoot at it. it. <laughs> well, this is kind of what Matthew's doing here. Yeah. He has this one point. You will face persecution. Mm -hmm. You must face opposition without being paralyzed by fear. Yeah. Write that at the top of any sermon. We we will face opposition and we must do it without being paralyzed by fear. That's it. And then he takes things that Jesus said and circles it. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, 24 and 25, you said, got to expect enemies. They called Jesus the devil. But what are they going to do to you? This, this, this bit in 26 and 27, basically he said, you know, I have told you things just separate, you apostles, just ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we didn't say them out, and so people didn't persecute. Well, what we said in the small group, it's now time to go out and say it in public. And they're not going to be singing Kumbaya when we get done. <laughs> yeah. Right. This is, this is what we've been saying here is going to offend some people and be ready. Um, in 28, this is really words of encouragement. It's a reminder of Emmanuel, God mm-hmm. with us, that whatever we face, God will be there. Uh, 29, uh, yeah, when, when facing a human judge, you got to remember who you're facing. This is two of these kind of together here. Well, who are you facing? And as you stand in front of that judge, remember you're going to face a different judge. Mm-hmm. It's kind of threatening sounding, but it, it really says, what world are you living in? Mm-hmm. As you face a human judge, looking back at Jeremiah being thrown in prison and various things, and these people were getting thrown in prison. It's an encouragement to remember mm-hmm. who that you're serving God. And that God will be with you. You get down into 32 through 33. Another, um, you know, as pressure mounts, an encouragement to stay true. Mm-hmm. And in the last section, 34 through 39, is an extended treatment of that kind of domestic problem that a lot of people had. Particularly, I would say, the Jewish folk that Matthew is writing to. This is an early Judeo-Christian community, mm-hmm. we think. And, you know, you you accept Jesus as the Messiah. That's not going to thrill everybody in the larger family, mm-hmm. you know, and um, including even not the whole larger family. You know, uh, we can we've seen things along these lines and he's encouraging stay true. And I'll and I'll know that we hear it as if you don't stay true, I, I won't be true to you. But that's not. You got to flip. It. Not exactly what's going on here. He's saying, "Stay firm, stay strong. I'm with you." That's mm-hmm. the promise that's being spoken here throughout. Yeah. Now it's hard sometimes for us. In the little scenario I painted about go to church and enjoy the hymns and what part of the sermon doesn't offend you and hang out with your friends at coffee mm-hmm. hour or whatever. Uh, and and that's a little facetious, but it's hard for us in 21st century America to understand genuine persecution. Sometimes um, certain people in the church 
are gen- are needlessly and endlessly offended by things that cause things change or people think differently. We're mm-hmm. not being oppressed by little things that bump us off our pro- our perch as uh, privileged. Right. You know, that's not what this is talking about. You can't turn this into, well, they're keeping us from saying hey, Merry Christmas and whatever. That's that's not what this is about. Starbucks is putting out the wrong kind of cups. Uh, yeah, that's just, that's just whining. That's, that's whining. What we're talking about is being able to stand up for the faith in the face of a culture that doesn't doesn't stand it. And for many of us, that has to do, as John did earlier, standing up for women in ministry in a church culture that may say that's not okay. It's standing up for uh, gender equity and, and trans rights in a culture that's attacking it right and left. Um, it, and I, I just don't want, I don't want to just raise left issues. I'm just trying to bring some things up that's mm-hmm. saying, this means standing up for what you genuinely believe in the face of the cost of it at times. And that's very difficult. Uh, yes. It has to do with, I think, and sometimes black lives do matter in ways that people don't want to hear about mm-hmm. and always have black lives matter. And the culture, if you look at it sociologically and examine it carefully, um, that's not been the case. And there's work to be done that we need to stand up for. And I believe this is saying, look at the truth, know the truth. And as you stand forth on the tr- speaking the truth for God on God's behalf, it's not going to be, oh, thank you for telling me. <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out. You did that so eloquently. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of you're the devil. And happens. uh, Yeah. Happens on the internet all the time. And in Facebook chats, you know, uh, and expound on my position and everybody in the chat room says, Oh, thank you for clearing that up. I I don't (laughs) guess I will be. And no, that's not how it happens. Yeah, uh, I think I mentioned last time I'm doing some work in the Psalms this summer, reading Walter Brueggemann, who, you know, when you got to go to the Psalms, you got to go to the Hebrew scripture. uh, It's hard to find better. Uh, And continually talking about the counter world that the Psalms present for us, the counter world of the world as God sees it, as opposed to the world that and you were talking earlier, we're under the illusion sometimes that the world works this way, but God says, no, 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 it's it's really over yeah. here. Um, yeah. And I, I just think that's true. We've often talk about the counter uh, world of the gospel. And sometimes these texts are just going to come right out and say, no, the way the world works is not it. And if you're going to uh, be living out, proclaiming, you know, if you're going to live the vision of gospel here, it ain't going to make everybody happy. And they're not going to always sing your praises. Uh, So very, very consistent with that. And uh, just, yeah, I love that this this particular selection from Matthew is framed by that opening, you know, 
uh, look, you, you're not the, you, the disciple, you're not above the teacher. And very quickly right. we're like, well, yeah, look what happens to Jesus. And then kind of moves through all the things you so deftly led us through. We can think it's intended to be a negative message, but then the pericope ends in verse 39. And just remember losing your life for my sake really is finding it. So, yeah. And, um, one of the one of the key elements here is, and I alluded to this earlier in talking about the Genesis thing. We turn tend to individualize uh, the relationship of the faith. We're Americans, and mm-hmm. we're all about what happens with the individual. And one of these things says is the gospel is above what happens to the individual. It's the larger case. The gospel is about. Uh, lifting up the world and you lose your life into the midst of the call of the gospel and you'll really find your life in that place and uh the uh, the real enemy of being engaged in gospel is our own narcissism and worrying about you know (laughs) my uh my younger sister recently retired and moved to florida from uh, having taught many years as an exceptional children teacher one of my favorite lines of hers, and uh, my sister's a, 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 a wonderful Southern lady with a master's in education. That's exactly how she says it. And she takes a pull on that Virginia Slims, and she'd say, yes, I tell my children to stop worrying about what other people think of them. They're just as narcissistic as you are. They're not thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. And <laughs> not, not worried about you at all. <laughs> so in all of Jeremiah and in Matthew, one of the encouragements is don't worry so much about what's happening to you, what people think of you, mm-hmm. how people are treating you. Mm-hmm. It's not about you. It's about the gospel yeah, and about what God is doing to redeem the world. Absolutely. All right, Bubba. Good stuff. Uh, I think it's pretty nimble uh, of you, of us, to take six texts and whip through them in about 45 minutes. So (laughs) we probably had a chance to say all we need to say. But uh, this this is really good stuff. We'll be back next week, everybody. Speaking of B as being nimble, I am nimble with my verbiage and my mind. I am definitely not nimble with any other part of my body. (laughs) Nimble on your feet. There's a famous photo and perhaps some uh, video footage of Delmer cutting the light fantastic tripping the light fantastic at summer camp or some such uh oh, yeah. I, I have seen said excerpt but uh, well actually uh you know we had a third the luther being lutherans we had a thursday night dance before the kids all went home on friday and there were rules for how you behaved at this dance and for many years the punishment for breaking the rules was having to go up on stage and dance with pastor <laughs> children which was more embarrassing to a 13 or 14 year old than anything on the planet. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I'm, I'm not a trip. The light yeah. fantastic. Kind of guy. I am more like Gene, Gene, the dancing machine myself. <laughs> All right, Bubba. Yeah, yeah. Not much left for us to do today. Other than to tell everybody bye. Everybody bye. Lectionary lab live is recorded by two bubbles and a Bible. 
Our opening theme is Next Steps, performed by Half.Cool. We go out today with a little tune coming in by special request in honor of the prophet Jeremiah. This is Gloom, Despair, and Agony on Me, written by Bernie Brillstein, Frank Pepiot, and John Ellsworth, performed by the Moonshiners from Hee Haw. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. Oh, 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 o